and uh, thus it is heading towards liberation. That was the opinion of Platonic and Neoplatonic philosophers as well. Plotinus, in one of his sayings, he says the true intelligence is the one which leads from ephemeral to immortal, which leads from the trite towards the divine. So that's the purified intelligence, that's the spiritual intelligence. We have people who are very intelligent, they think at least, and their intelligence drives them towards cynicism, skepticism, sarcasm, disbelief, atheism, and other things like those. That is, according to Plotinus and according to Patanjali, a non-refined intelligence. It can be a very powerful intelligence, it can be a very sharp intelligence, but it is not a spiritual intelligence, it is not an intuitive intelligence, it is not an intelligence that looks up, it is just powerful, and that's all, but it is gross, it is not refined. And that is why the mind itself is an instrument of going towards spiritual emancipation, and as you know, all of you, the mind manifests in us among others through the fact that it gives us aspiration, it gives us thoughts for enlightenment, it gives us a lot of what the Tibetans call bodhicitta, the thinking of enlightenment, thinking of enlightenment, the thought of enlightenment. And therefore, the mind is a very good adjunct of the spirit, in the moment when it is spiritualized indeed. That's why in the Yoga Sutra, Patanjali never despises the mind. Patanjali always wants to use the mind, this being the typical path of Raja Yoga. A powerful, spiritualized, sublime mind is neither sarcastic, nor cynical, nor disbelieving. It is, on the contrary, a mind which serves spirit. It works together with spirit, it never challenges the spiritual reality. And we are prepared now to go to the new sutras, and uh, tonight we prepare to actually end this fundamental text, which is so challenging at places, through the amplitude of the thoughts, through the abstractness of uh, Patanjali's meditations. And we go at sutra number 27, which says, in the breaks on this journey, still other pratyayas, translated usually as thoughts, but we'll see what that is, may arise due to past impressions. He says, in the breaks on this journey, that's an added meaning. He said in the previous sutra, the mind is inclined towards discrimination and heads towards enlightenment. And then now he says, in the breaks, still other pratyayas may arise due to past impressions, which simply says, even when your mind is heading towards enlightenment, you will most probably not be able to be relentless, like 24-7, doing yoga day in and day out, doing yoga day and night. Every human being will have moments of weakness. Of course, it is very difficult to see the moments of weakness of one like Patanjali, I'm sorry, not Patanjali himself, because not much is known about him as a person or his uh, trajectory in spirituality, but let's take a sacred cow like Milarepa. 
how can we see where the weaknesses of Milarepa are? Because Milarepa appears, according to his own biography, self-biography, he appears to be a machine. He's like a yoga machine. Nothing stops Milarepa. Milarepa goes day in and day out. His aspiration, his spiritual power is relentless. And yet, of course, even Milarepa is not 100%. He probably is 99%, and that 1% missing, we can't really see it, so insignificant it is, and so little we know about the small details of the life of Milarepa. And therefore, nobody can go all the way to 100%, unless perhaps avatars sent from above with a divine mission to change humanity, to change the planet and endowed directly with the perfection of the divine will. But otherwise, we humans, who are all on the path of evolution, will have some breaks. I do yoga for 16 hours and then I spend 8 hours to sleep or something. There will be a break. Okay, maybe four hours of those that I sleep, I'm doing yoga nidra. But still, there will be some break somewhere. Nobody goes 24-7 in their spiritual efforts. And therefore, Patanjali being very realistic in these ways, he says, in the breaks, like when you are not really fully on, still other pratyayas may arise. Pratyaya, again, usually translated as thoughts, but it is actually a derivative, it is an equivalent, an analog, a synonym for vasanas, for kleshas, impurities of the mind, subconscious tendencies, that simply says the mind is not, has not become blank. There still are impressions of the past. There still are kleshas, vasanas, samskaras, pratyayas, if you prefer. And therefore, Patanjali warns, even when the mind is refined and goes, to, goes towards the final onslaught for enlightenment, still pratyayas may arise, he says, due to past impressions. The weeds are not uprooted completely. There are still roots of the weeds in your mind, and as soon as you take a break, the weeds start sprouting again. So... Still, at this level, even at this level, there will be some imperfection of consciousness, such as remembering old things, being conditioned by different thoughts and concepts. But please remember again and again, that is nevertheless a transient state. Padangeli wants to give us a landmark and to show where we are and what to expect on this path. And on the Sutra 28, he continues and he explains what he wants to say. He says, the removal of these pratyayas, all these vasanas, samskaras, thoughts, vikalpas, whatever you want to call them, vritis, whatever, pratyayas, the removal of these little weeds which are still there in the mind, even at such an advanced level, is described as the destruction of the kleshas. I remind that the name klesha means impurity of the mind. There are some five basic kleshas related to the five elements. We commented all those in the beginning of chapter 2 of the Yoga Sutra. In the chapter 2 of the Yoga Sutra, in the sutras between uh, 3 to 11, in the beginning ones, Patanjali talks about the kleshas, which are the kleshas, and how to remove them. 
Therefore, that is a treatise, that part is like how to weed the garden, how to eliminate these weeds, how to eliminate these little things that sprout all the time in the mind because of past impressions, because of residues in our subconscious mind. And therefore, he reminds to us that to remove these pratyayas is the same as the destruction of the kleshas. Go back to those sutras and there you will discover that he of course speaks about Pratipaksha Bhavana going uh, to the opposite thought and things like this as yogic psychological methods to destroy some of the tendencies which are ingrained in our subconscious mind. And that is why here he doesn't take, tell us anything new, he just tells us that the kleshas the pratyayas, some residual things, still exist even when your mind is headed towards enlightenment. And even then, you have to pay attention to weed your garden from time to time. Uh, of course, these weeds are not that, that big and that pernicious and that terrible for a person who is at that level, unless the person completely abdicates from any form of mind control, emotional control, moral and ethical behavior and things like those, and really allows to those weeds to invade the garden again. But generally a spirit reached at this level of evolution will be a spirit who will be generally cautious and will weed the garden of the mind periodically. So here Patanjali simply reminds to us that uh, still at this level it is necessary to look a little bit into the kleshas, into the vasanas, samskaras, vikalpas, vritis or pratyayas, all these being almost equivalent concepts and they all of them talk about distinction, differentiation at the level of the mind, as opposed to a mind which is perfectly appeased, which is perfectly undifferentiated, like the mind of Buddhahood. So, in this way, here Patanjali uh, gives just a warning, and we don't need to insist so much. And then, in the Sutra number 28, 29, he starts referring to surpassing this last stage and going to the final accomplishment. Sutra number 29 can be translated as follows. When there is no interest, even in the highest rewards or fruits, Dharma Mega Samadhi develops on account of complete discrimination. He says, when there is no interest, even in the highest rewards or fruits. This goes way beyond paranormal abilities. In the chapter number 3, he said, if you are not interested even in the paranormal abilities, the Siddhis, even when the gods in Devachan come and lure you, and they say, wow, what a great yogi you are, you made it all the way up to the godly levels of consciousness, congratulations, come and drink the drink of immortality with us, be a god, you have earned your right of being a god, and uh, Patanjali then said, well, you shouldn't stop, you shouldn't fall for such a cheap thing, because your purpose has not been reached yet. He basically here tells, he tells us 
what's happening when you finally refuse everything, manifest this total detachment, like nothing is good enough for me but the cherry on top of the cake, the top of the pyramid of the universal existence. And then he says, when there is no interest, even in the highest rewards or fruits, you are going to reach immortality. I'm not interested. You are going to sit by the right hand of God and live forever in the kingdom of heaven. I'm not interested. You are going to, I don't know, reach immortality, spiritual immortality. I'm not interested. Like, I'm not interested even in those rewards or fruits which are supposed to belong purely to the spiritual life. This is what Jesus himself was underlying when he said that the ultimate cause or motivation of spiritual practice must be love, unconditional love. You should not do spiritual practice because you are afraid to go to hell or because you want to buy immortal life. He says, Jesus says, there are those who make the will, who fulfill the will of my Father because of fear, and that's how religion deals with the masses. The masses are constantly threatened with hell, threatened with perdition, threatened with trouble, and therefore, if you do religion, the way 90% of the people do religious practices is because of fear. I don't want to go to hell. It's not worth it to risk it. Maybe the Christian saints were right after all. So why not guard your wealth, your spiritual wealth? And therefore, you know, it's good to go on Sunday to the church, light a candle, say a little prayer, because if there is a God and if there are angels, then you stand to gain everything. And therefore, why shouldn't you kind of guard yourself from danger? This, the motivation of this is fear. And many modern people, many atheists, skeptics, many cynical and sarcastic people, when criticizing religious institutions, such as uh, the Christian church or the Buddhist institution, the Buddhism as a monastic institution, they criticize the fact that actually most of these religions, they scare the hell out of people with heaven and hell and rewards and punishments and this and this, and they consider it ludicrous, they consider it ridiculous, they come and make fun of it. The bitter truth is that uh, even Jesus describes himself as a shepherd, the good shepherd. Well, in case you didn't know, Guess who does a shepherd tend to? A shepherd tends to sheep. So Jesus himself in his great compassion, while he says, if you gave food to the least of my brethren, to me you have given, I am one and the same with the most miserable creature on this planet. So his compassion is total, his identification is total, and nevertheless, Jesus knows that 90% of the people are a mob. They are lemmings. They are sheep. And the only way to deal with sheep is to threaten them, to scare them. Many people say, why does the church threaten people with hell and so on? Because they would not respond to anything else. They are basically people of Kali Yuga, pygmies of Kali Yuga, small materialistic souls, 
who they respond to threats and fear. They do not respond to noble endeavors like this. It's a bitter truth and it is a psychological reality. And while the manipulators of this planet, they try to destroy religion and instead of believing in Jesus and Krishna and so, they try to make you believe in the United Nations and the world army and currency and the global village and stupefying things like this. Nevertheless, they also use the policy of threat, as you can see in the modern politics of today, where there is always a big brother and bullying nations and policy of threats and force and this and that, and you are threatened all the time with your money, with your subsistence, with this, with that. So actually, the capitalistic jungle in which we live it's just a jungle, it's just a world of the force in which most people do it for threat. If I don't put some bread and butter on my table, I'm going to die of starvation very soon. This is not nothing else but fear. Therefore, unfortunately, uh, the human beings at the level of the sheep, unfortunately they respond perfectly to this thing. You have to guard them with fear. Whenever you do, uh, there is a Kumbha Mela where seven million devout Hindus come to bathe in the Ganges. Yes, and there are also some 70,000 soldiers taking care that those people don't stampede on each other, they don't kill each other, and they don't produce a mayhem. Like, you need 70,000 soldiers, what is the presence of the soldiers doing? It is threatening. If you misbehave, we're going to arrest you, beat you up, push you back with the tips of bio, our bayonets or something, which simply says, it's a threat. Behave or else, look, because we are, there are many, many soldiers ready to restore order. What's this but threat? Actually, the modern world, with, poli with police and army and enforcing laws and so on, it's all based on threat. You cannot say a politically incorrect joke. You cannot emit an uh, opinion which is racistic or extreme or this or that, because then you are going to be wiped out. What is this but threat? We are living in a world where power rules and the masses are treated as fearful little animals that have to behave and we are just given a narrow corridor of possibilities. That's why to describe the modern world with its so-called uh, ideal of democracy as a world of freedom is a ridiculous joke actually when you look around because both at national, international levels as well at, at individual levels there is not really a freedom in this way. And that's why I have said all these things, just because uh, starting from uh, Patanjali, uh, I'm talking about the motivation of people. We do things for rewards of some sort. And Jesus said, the lowest level is the one where you act out of fear. And unfortunately, we wish it wasn't there, but it is. For most people, the fear is there. You know, you just have the cyclone Katrina hitting, and then in 48 hours, New Orleans becomes a gang zone. Women are raped in refugee centers. You know, it's like 
in 48 hours a nation which proclaims itself to be civilized and politically correct and this and that turns to bestiality because as soon as the threat is down when the cat is not at home the mice are playing on the table or whatever the proverb is uh, so uh, therefore the first motivation is fear and then Jesus says then there are though and he says those who do the will of God because of fear they are nothing else but the slaves of God the regular citizen seeking for salvation in Christianity is called in the liturgic texts coming from St. John Chrysostomus and St. Basil the Great and the great theologians of old days, they are called the slave of God. The text literally says, And still, O God, we pray now for the soul of the slave of God, Walter, who has passed away and is asking for mercy. Walter? What is Walter in front of God? Walter is no more than a slave of God. In India, in theistic, dualistic religions, like the Vaishnava religion, which is very much a householder religion in India, and the Hare Krishna is a bit of an extreme manifestation of that Vaishnavistic religion, it's the same. People are called Krishna Dasa. People are called Vasu Dasa or something. What is Dasa? Dasa means a slave, a servant. It's a coolie. It's one of the low caste. So you are Krishna Dasa. You are the, 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 the carpet. You are the doormat of Krishna. That's what Krishna Dasa means. You are under the feet of Krishna. Krishna wipes his boots on you. You are the slave of Krishna. No? This is the level which the tantric tradition of India calls Pashu. Cattle. That human beings are like cattle. They have animal behaviors and they don't try to cultivate neither strength nor nobleness. It's just a humanity which is driven by instincts. Unfortunately, the solution to this is very different from spiritual compassionate people like Buddha and Christ and those who manipulate. Buddha and Christ, they can see that this planet especially in Kali Yuga, is filled up with people who are Pashus, cattle, people who are slaves of God, and these people are ready to shed their own blood to elevate the humanity, to bring these people to a higher consciousness. While, for example, the manipulators, the shameless manipulators, political, financial, and others of today, they simply rule them hard. In one of the documents of shame, of manipulation, one of the most notorious documents of manipulation uh, issued on this planet in the end of the 19th century, the first paragraph of this document is starts with a sentence, I cannot quote it perfectly from the memory, but it says, since it is obvious that most people on this planet are ruled by low instincts, then, which means treat them as the animals that they are, give them bread and circus, and manipulate them shamelessly because they are cannon fodder. You cannot do anything better with them. They are rats, they are mice, many and sprouting more, you know, many, many and 
multiplying like rabbits and you can't get anything out of them because they are just a bunch of kindergarten little pets, kin little animals, lab rats, you know, that's what they are good for. This is the difference in attitude that the spiritual people as well as some Manipura lucid manipulators, they all of them have observed that the majority of humanity is made of people who are weak, subjected to animal desires, subjected to materialistic tendencies, full of selfishness and so on. And very few people like you here are trying to get out of this predicament and to shed this animal nature and to stand up and to be more than that. But again, while shameless manipulators say, give to people bread and circus, like Machiavelli, you know, having no scruples about this, the great spiritual compassionate spirits of Shambhala and the great avatars that came to help this planet, they are shedding tears of blood out of compassion for the, their younger brothers and sisters, their smaller brothers and sisters, who are meant, however, one day also to reach Buddhahood. And therefore, compassion says that even human beings who are a bit animal today, in a million years, they will be very spiritual. It's just a matter of time and general evolution. And that's why, let's come back to the levels to, to see what Patanjali was trying to say in this sutra, uh, that he says, if one res renounces, has no interest even in the highest rewards or fruits. And Jesus then continues, he says, the second category are those who make the will of God for rewards. They expect some rewards. They are the smart people who discover if you behave, you are going to get something out of it. If you behave, you will get merit. If you do charity, you will accumulate good karma. If you do this, you will do that. Why should you be weak? Always, always, always be positive. And these people do the will of God, obey to Yama and Yama and this, simply because they have an interest. They know that that's the smart way to live your life, because thus you get advantages. But those people are still very egoistic. They are not tamasic, they are rajasic. They are the smart ones, the ones who manipulate with God. They understood the laws of the universe and they are ready to manipulate. And Jesus says, those are the tradesmen of God. Those are the merchants of God. You strike a deal with God. Ha, ah, God, I understand the way you think. Okay, I shall behave. But, and if I behave, I know you are going to give me lots and lots of gifts. And therefore, I do it. These are the smart people who trade with God, who discover that it's much smarter to live your life in a pseudo-spiritual way, to do good things, give charity, be nice and so on, and actually you are very egoistic. You are not really, it's not an aspect, it's not love, it's not surrender, it's just like that. And uh, yet you are doing it because you realize that you caught some trick, that now you know some trick which helps you get by. And finally, says Jesus, there are those few who fulfill the will of God or do God's will because of love. Like, there is no other reason. I'm not getting anything. I might not get anything. I might get martyrdom even. I might get trouble out of it. 
and yet I am doing it anyhow. In these situations, we have the stories of those great people who are even tested bitterly. bitterly. When you read the life of Saint Therese of Lisieux, the French Roman Catholic Christian saint of 19th century, you find out that Therese of Lisieux, who suffered from tuberculosis and was slowly dying of consumption, spitting blood and not having breathing capacity anymore, so it's an agonizing death, it's not even an easy death, and at the same time, in the last weeks of her life, she doesn't feel Jesus at all. She was totally in love with Jesus. She felt Jesus as God. She even had a sort of feeling like Jesus was her lover. She, Jesus, this internal Jesus, was coming to her as a lover. And then, six weeks before dying, at the age of 25 or something, like 29 or something, like really young, a miserable death with consumption, with tuberculosis, and she doesn't feel anything. She doesn't feel God. She doesn't feel Jesus. She has entered in what St. John of the Cross calls the dark night of the soul. She is tested onto her love. What if everything is not true? What if the whole thing was bullshit? Are you still going to pray? Are you still? It's like the devil gives her the last temptation. Nothing is true. See, nobody heals you. You are young. You are dying. And where is Jesus? It's nowhere. It was in your mind, maybe. Huh? Maybe that doesn't even exist, God. Can you feel something? See, pray. See, nothing is happening when you pray. It's like you talk to the wall. It's like your soul goes completely dead. Can you still do it? Then, can you live an exemplary spiritual life then, when everything is lost? Only the person who is a son of God can do that, because that person acts because of love. God, even if you kick me, even if you spit on me, even if you despise me, I don't care, I'm still going to love you, and I'm still going to do things perfectly, because I don't expect for anything. I don't even expect for a place in paradise. Paramahamsa Yogananda expresses this beautifully in one of his songs, in one of his poems, when he says, God, give me the humblest place in your heart. Like, I don't want to be anybody. I don't want to become the king of the world. I don't want to be in Shambhala with a laurel crown on my head. I don't want to be in the choirs of the saints. And I, I'm nobody. Let me be the most humble person somewhere there. I want to be nobody. Just give me the most humble place in your kingdom, in your heart, in whatever. I can sweep the toilets in the kingdom of heaven. I don't care. Just, I want to love you. The only thing which I want is I want to have this love. This is the one, according to Patanjali, who says there is no interest even in the highest rewards of fruits. You have to give up even the interest in enlightenment. What is enlightenment? And then great mystics have found marvelous ways of putting it. Patanjali says, since everything is Shiva in this universe, who gets enlightened or liberated? And from what? It's like the soul was not liberated and in a place which is not Shiva and it's in a prison and it has to escape to go in Shiva, in Nirvana, in the good place. But wait a second, because Shakti 
is Shiva, and therefore the soul is in Shiva when it is bound and when it is free. So if the soul is liberated already now, then it means that all this concept of liberation is a complete nonsense. Because who gets liberated and from what? Because it's like you go from the right hand of Shi from the right pocket of Shiva into the left pocket of Shiva. It makes no difference if you are here or there, if you are dead or alive, if you are enlightened or not enlightened. So isn't this all just an attempt to sell something? Like people who are the merchants of God say, Oh, so if I will do eight hours of meditation per day, I'm going to be liberated. Oh, I'm doing this. I would like to buy my liberation. To bribe God to get liberated. And there comes a moment, believe me, in the spiritual practice where even this shield falls down. And in that moment, the only motivation which remains is aspiration. You, you don't want to buy anything. There is only a sort of attraction which can be termed love. There is only this frantic aspiration of the soul. And the mind says, well, if you go there, you're not going to get anything. Yes, and I'm going to go there anyhow. Because I long frantically for that. I don't need any explanation, I don't need any motivation, and I definitely don't need any scare to make me go there. I don't act because of fear, I don't act because of a promise, I act simply because I love what I do, and my soul loves the divine consciousness. And this is all there is to say. In, this, in such a condition, there is no discouragement. Nobody can discourage me in any way. The devil cannot come and whisper in my ear, <laughs> stupid fool, you are doing meditation, what's the big, you are going to get nothing anyhow. There is nothing, you know. The skepticism, the cynicism, the, the, the demonic sarcasm, you know, like what are you striving for? No. I'm striving for because I'm in love with myself, because I'm in love with the divine consciousness which is my own self, and I don't need anything. What will you get if you do all this meditation yoga? Nothing, perhaps nothing, and I don't care to get nothing. I'm not going to get a laurel crown, I'm not going to get anything. Therefore, even this final motivation has to be given up. Then you can see if your heart really longs for it, or if you are still hoping in some rewards. And there comes a moment when the prospect of those rewards disappears. And in that moment, it's the dark night of the soul. You are like stripped naked, and you are not afraid of hell, because you don't think there is any hell, or it doesn't matter. But at the same time, you don't see any reward as well in front of you. And then the question is, are you still going to walk forward? Are you still going to want to embrace the divine? It's purely a matter of love. It's pure a matter of affinity between the drop of water, which is your individual self, and the ocean that is God or the cosmic consciousness. And therefore, Patanjali says, when you manage to uproot all these pratyayas, all these little weeds, Finally, then you reach to the ultimate level. Then there are no more breaks along the path. And then he says, the Dharma Mega 
develops on account of complete discrimination. He uses here the word viveka as discrimination, like now, finally, you understood. Discrimination means you can discriminate between things. And therefore, this discrimination for him is like to know God. It's an equivalent for him, viveka. It's an equivalent for the word jnana. It means you, or vijnana. It means you have the highest knowledge. So he says, when complete discrimination develops and there is no more interest in any rewards, you are not lured to God by anything, then only by pure aspiration, then the Dharma Mega develops. Dharma Mega is a word which in literal translation means cloud of virtue. Dharma means virtue, righteousness, religiousness, if you push it a little bit, and mega is a cloud. Dharma mega is a cloud of virtue. Like imagine a cloud covering the sky and pouring beneficial rain, and that's the cloud of Dharma. It's the cloud of God. It's the cloud of righteousness. It is the right thing. It is the highest concept, the Dharma. And this Dharma Mega is commented by Vyasa and other great commentators of the Yoga Sutra as being a form of Samadhi. Actually, this would be an equivalent of a very high form of Samadhi. Technically, here, Patanjali does not allow us to equate it with Bhava Samadhi or Sahaja Samadhi, although it would have to be that, but he doesn't give any technical information about it. He simply says, when all motivation has disappeared, and, paraphrasing Jesus, you are a son of God, and your motivation is only love, then you are reaching the Dharma Mega Samadhi, the, that, the cloud of virtue. And it is commented, as I said, by Vyasa and others, that this is the form of Samadhi specific to the great prophets, to the founders, to the founders of religions. It is the foundation of the knowledge, that those who have the foundation of the superior knowledge, this viveka, this jnana, those who have this foundation of knowledge in themselves, in the deeper self. So this is basically a complete liberation from any conditioning whatsoever. That's why here Patanjali has said, well, your mind interfaces with spirit, your mind looks towards spirit, your mind collaborates with spirit, and your mind going towards spirit goes towards Kaivalya. There can still be some pratyayas, some vasanas along the path, and when finally all motivation, all yearning for fruits and merits and rewards is gone, then indeed you have reached Dharma Mega Samadhi, the cloud of virtue, the samadhi of the great prophets, the samadhi of the great knowers, the ones who have not been motivated by anything. For them, the foundation of knowledge being into themselves, there was no other motivation but the bringing forth of this knowledge, empowering other human beings to discover this self-knowledge, to discover this fundamental knowledge. So, of course, here Patanjali describes the higher spiritual realization. That spiritual realization in which motivation has disappeared, that spiritual realization in which uh, 
yearning for the rewards and fruits and at the same time being stopped by some pratyayas, thoughts, vasanas, kleshas, impurities of the subconscious mind is finally removed. This is when indeed there is no more way back. Normally, Patanjali warns that even if you experience Nirvikalpa Samadhi, moments of Samadhi, then it is possible after six months later to still have weeds growing in your mind because that is not the end of it. But Patanjali says if you have reached Dharma Mega Samadhi, the cloud of virtue Samadhi, then indeed there is no more relapsing. That is very rare in the way in which was explained. And Sutra number 30 naturally continues explaining what is this Dharma Mega Samadhi, what are we talking about, and the Sutra number 30 is short and it says thereafter or therefrom because of that, from this Dharma Mega Samadhi, complete discrimination, complete viveka as he calls it, therefrom or thereafter arises freedom from kleshas and karmas. So, Patanjali says, only by reaching this Dharma Mega Samadhi, one is free from kleshas. Again, kleshas means poisons of the mind, impurities of the mind, like the fear of death, the desire, all these basic impurities of the mind. So, only at this level, thereafter, therefrom, from the Dharma Mega Samadhi, there results freedom from kleshas and karmas. So here is also the complete annihilation of all the karmas as well. Only from this level you can speak about somebody who has terminated all their karmas, all their kleshas. The Samadhi of Buddha, for example, is clearly there because Buddha acknowledges that he has eliminated all the samskaras, all the vrittis, all the impurities of the mind, all the kleshas, and also Buddha clearly states that he has finished all his karmas. There are no more karmas for him, and he says, I'm not going to come back to this universe. I have finished all the karmas, I have terminated that. So, this is the Dharma Mega Samadhi. This is only where you can speak about this. It's a very serious warning, because in the Indian tradition there exists, unfortunately, the tendency, because of a certain superficiality, that's just another form of decadence of yoga, that some people believe that you have reached some spiritual experiences, uh, you are kind of faultless, flawless. You are kind of, you can't fall back again. While the hermetic tradition from the West even has a dictum which says that when you fall from high, you fall worst. Those who fall from a higher height, from a greater height, when they fall, they knock themselves worse than those who fall from a small height. And therefore, the higher you go, the more the risk to, fa to fall from a big height exists. And that is why most spirituality in the world preaches very clearly that you should not lower your guard. There is temptation, there is egoism, there is selfishness there, and you should not lower your guard till you have reached the Dharma Mega Samadhi 
to speak technically. Even if you had some high states of consciousness, even if you had some forms of samadhi and so on, that doesn't mean that you are flawless, without kleshas, without karmas, and you can do whatever you want, because you can still flunk, you can still flop, and you can actually flop miserably, and you can fall worse than somebody who is a beginner and falls just a little way down. You have a long way down to fall when you fall from up there. And that is why most spirituality is advised, keep your guard up, don't lower your guard, don't light your head on the laurels of victory and say, oh, I'm such a spiritual person. Be modest, be humble all the time, cultivate spirituality because the battle is not yet over. While some people, unfortunately, and again, in Indian culture, this has become one of the main poisons of the Indian culture. There are endless authors, babas, sadhus, and others who are ridden by a demonic pride, by a demonic arrogance, claiming that since they have uh, give, getting some altered state of consciousness or something, now they must be perfect and therefore they can do whatever. And in this way you find all these stories of the gurus tumbling down the pedestal simply because they thought themselves flawless before the time came. And ultimately that's a kind of a supreme trick. Like when you thought I am really great, then you started tumbling down because you lowered your guard. Don't lower your guard before it's over, indeed. The Christian saints say, used to say, as long as one is alive in a physical body, the devil can still trick you even in the last moment. So you should go on strong till the last moment. When you pass away, then you will have your judgment day and you will see if you have done what you have done worked or not, if you got it or not. But until that point, you can't afford to lower your guard. Therefore, Patanjali here draws the attention, but very few people in Indian yoga pay attention to this, and I'm speaking from experience by seeing what's happening in that environment, because you find so much arrogance, so much vanity, so much superficiality, and so much foolish superficial trust that, oh, this person is always right, this person, I am always right, I can't be wrong, I can't be this, I can't be that. And actually, when you look at the behaviors of people, you see always, in, in many cases of this, you see aberrant things. And then you can ask yourself, how comes that this person who is reputed in this way is also in that way? Therefore, remember that uh, the story is not over until it's over, indeed. Only thereafter arises freedom from kleshas and karmas, after reaching this spiritual realization. That was the sutra number 30, which is liable to a very, very serious self-inquiry, even for people who are advanced on spiritual path. And the sutra number 31, we are approaching the end of this abstruse but marvelous yogic text, 
he says, that's 31, then by removal of all veils and impurities, the knowable, the knowable, the object, the, the universe of the five elements. Remember, the world is made from knower, knowledge, and knowable. The knower, the knower is Atman, the crown chakra. The knowledge is Agya, the sixth level. And the known, the knowable, are the five lower chakras, the universe of the five senses, and the universe of the five elements, the object. So he says, then by removal of all veils and impurities, because now there are no more kleshas and karmas, the knowable becomes insignificant, trifling, like really small, because of the infinity of the knowledge. Ajna chakra, as knowledge, is a universe much vaster than the five chakras previous to it put together. In yoga, the lower five chakras together have 48 spokes up till Vishuddha. When you sum up the 4 plus 6 plus 10 plus 12 plus 16, that makes 48 spokes. And Ajna alone has two times 48. This is a beautiful symbol because it says Ajna alone is twice as much as everything which was until here. Therefore, Ajna is not only like the sum of those, it's double as much, which is a metaphor. We don't know really if there are 96 spokes or 972 spokes in. That's what the yogic texts write. But who do you think bothered to count? To count 96 different spokes one millimeter away from each other in Ajna Chakra. Who do you think would sit to count 972 different spokes in Sahasrara one by one separated by a distance like a hair's breadth between each other? Nobody really bothers. Nobody can count them. The point is a numerological symbol. In the moment when I'm telling you that Ajna Chakra has 96 spokes, that is 2 times 48, and 48 is everything summed up till here, I'm telling you Ajna Chakra is like everything until here, and double up. It's like much bigger. It's like a new order of dimension. So this means knowledge, the universe of knowledge, mind, is a gigantic universe compared to the universe of the five elements. All these universe with its galaxies and matter and energy and so on is a dwarf compared to the mind. And then Sahasrara doesn't have 96 spokes. Sahasrara has 960, like 10 times over. Like don't even try to imagine how the spirit is, how the knower is. The knower is way over top. It represents a completely different octave of reality. And that's why Patanjali here says wonderfully, he, he underlines this wonderfully, he says, then by removal of all veils and impurity, the knowable, the object, becomes insignificant, trifling, because of the infinity of knowledge. Like knowledge, he uses knowledge for Ajna, but he of course can refer to it in the meaning of spiritual discrimination, and then it's the knower itself, is gigantic 
compared to it. That's why in a state of samadhi, a real state of samadhi of this kind, one of the typical sensations which appears is that the world is insignificant. It's very, very small. You see, normally, people live in this reality. We always say, I am small and the world is so big. But for one like Jesus, the world is not big. Jesus tell, he says, take heart because I have defeated the world. I have vanquished the world, which means the world is small compared to me. The world is not a big deal because I have vanquished the world. I won. It's like a battle. And I won this battle. I defeated the world. Therefore, the world is not that big. The world is big when you are ignorant, when you are in the object, in the world of the object, then I am weak, I am small, and the world is big. But for Jesus, the world is not big. The world is a very small thing. And that's why Jesus never says, this world is so big and complicated, oh brothers and sisters, it's difficult. He comes and he is all knowledgeable. He comes and says, things are like this, the world is like this, People are like this. Salvation is like, hey, hey, really, aren't you big-headed, dude? You know, it's like, how do you know all those things, you know? You don't even have a family. You don't have children. You didn't create a business. You are not earning your own money. You are not a farmer. You are not a manual laborer. How comes you are such a big-headed guy and you are the know-it-all type of person? Where the heck do you know it, you know? It's like you are just a religious preacher after all. And yet Jesus comes and says, I know all. The world, I have vanquished the world. The world, I have chewed on it and spat it already. It's like a little seed between my teeth, you know. It's like, I, it, it doesn't have much, it's trifling, it's insignificant. This is the way it appears from the world of the spirit. In, from samadhi, from the higher samadhi, the world doesn't seem to be big or relevant. The world, especially the five elements, the world as an object, seems to be insignificant, trifling. It's like a seesaw. It's like a complete change of perspective. You just go and go and the world seems so difficult and so complicated. And then from the level of the higher states of samadhi, the world is not that complicated. The world is can be vanquished in spirit. You can vanquish, you can defeat the world. Meditate upon this, because many, many people are terrified in front of the world. Samsara, the boogeyman, oh, you will get lost in the labyrinth. You are the prisoner of the matrix. The world is the big bad wolf. It's uh, so many troubles and everything. Not for Buddha, not for the people who have reached there. Of course, they can see the world through your eyes. They can remember how they saw it when they were like you. But they realize from their level that things are rather simple. You can vanquish this reality. It's a very, very, one of the most spectacular changes of perspective. By removal of veils and impurities, it's just the veils and impurities which make it look a big scary thing, the knowable becomes insignificant, trifling because of the infinity of knowledge. And this moves us to the sutra number 32, in which 
he starts the final process. Now in the sutras number 32, 33, and 34, he is going to conclude the process by speaking about this final state of attainment. So the sutra itself says, thereafter, so after having reached this Dharma Mega Samadhi, after the kleshas disappearing, after the world becoming insignificant, trifling, after all the things mentioned before, thereafter, having fulfilled their purpose, the gunas retire and the process of change ends. So, he couldn't have said it more clear. He says, after this point, when indeed you have cancelled all kleshas and karmas, even the gunas, which are energies of Ajna Chakra, of the mind, of the causal body, the gunas retire. They withdraw. There is no more need. There are no gunas for Patanjali. There are no gunas for the spirit of Gautama Buddha. 32, I remind you, saying, after, after destroying kleshas and karmas, having fulfilled their purpose, that was their purpose, therefore, to bring you here, the gunas retire and the process of change ends. That means, Patanjali says it very clearly, there is no more process of change, which means of becoming, of evolution. The vertical evolution stops, because where would you go beyond the point of the pyramid, beyond the tip of the pyramid? There is not a pyramid above that pyramid. The tip of the pyramid is the absolute. The absolute means the absolute. There is nothing hidden behind the absolute, because then the absolute would be relative. The absolute would be a derivative of something higher. And that is why, in the moment when one has reached that, there is no more qualitative process of evolution. As I often say in the lectures of this school, there does exist a process of evolution of enlightened beings through the fact that they can grow branches. They can evolve quantitatively by acquiring more shakti and con controlling the world of the objects. And there, some enlightened beings are quite impotent, and some enlightened beings are almost omnipotent. And therefore, there is a big difference in that. So there is a growth, but that growth is not like this. There is nowhere else to go beyond Sahasrara. There is no chakra above Sahasrara, and above the crown chakra. And that is why Patanjali makes it very clear that the process of change ends and the gunas, sattva, rajas, tamas, those energies which make the universal reality transform, the gunas retire. He uses a word which says they retire, they withdraw. I hope you realize that this statement is a purely subjective statement because Patanjali doesn't say when Walter gets enlightened, the gunas of the universe retire and the evolution stops. It means when one person would reach Buddhahood, the universe would fall apart like a card game because it was a big illusion to start with and somebody has exposed it. Aha, I discovered that the universe is Maya, is an illusion. 
it falls down for everybody. No, it remains a Maya for all the others. Everybody lives in their soap bubble and still sees whatever they see, their personal reality. But for that yogi, subjectively, for that yogin or yogini, the gunas withdraw, they have no more function to fulfill, and the process of change, the evolution, the spiritual evolution, ends. That is very, very clearly expressed. So, here are some fundamental data which yogis used for centuries to try to fathom what this state of enlightenment is. For you, these things seem quite clear because you have heard about samadhi before. You read books written by great yogis. You have heard commentaries in this school where we speak about the state of enlightenment or liberation or transcendence. And it's like, quite right. But don't forget, this was put on paper 25 centuries ago when this information were not available and clear. And that's why Patanjali's text was like a beacon in the dark. It was like a lighthouse in the dark. Many yogis from India, and not only, guided themselves with Patanjali's text in their hand. Like, what does Patanjali says? How should it be? How will I recognize it? Okay, the gunas retire, and the process of change ends. Okay, so that's it. These things were, you may take them for granted because we give them to you already pre-digested and after they have gone through 25 centuries of history of yoga. But in the beginning, when Patanjali wrote them, it was like a revelation. It was like somebody finally put on paper what we were all waiting to see, some guidelines about that supreme reality which is otherwise so difficult to fathom. And the sutra number 33, the last but one in this marvelous text, continues, as I warned you, 32, 33, 34, they speak about this higher state. And while sutra number 32 said, then for such a yogi, the gunas retire and the process of change, the evolution ends, 33 says, krama, succession, you remember we mentioned this succession, that a time moment is followed by another time moment, like a slideshow, like an infinitely fast slideshow, because all that exists are moments. The power of now, the prakasha, the light of Shiva, the light of Purusha, the light of Atma, that moment. But the moments are glued from moment to moment, while the moments are static, like a slideshow in a movie, they give the impression of us being alive and moving because there is time, there is causality, and therefore every movement of mind is followed by another movement and another. And when I stand up and walk that way, I will finally get in the office and so on. Like there exists a logical continuity of this universe while there is basically there exists just this static consciousness. And therefore, this is called by Patanjali, Krama, the succession. And he mentioned it several times, including in the chapter 3 in the end, where he says that this is the supreme Samyama, to meditate, to do Samyama on the moment and on the succession, the laws of succession from one moment to another, to understand both the nature of the moment, that is Shiva, and the nature of the glue 
that connects one moment to another moment, and that is Shakti, that is the manifestation. Those are the causal laws of this universe. And therefore, here he comes third time, and last time, of course, back to this subject, which is quite beloved to him. He loves to meditate on this connection between moment, the static moment, and the fact that there is a law which connects one moment with the next moment. It's exactly like in making a cartoon. A cartoonist, when he makes a cartoon, a Walt Disney, and when he wants to show that Mickey Mouse is running, you know that Mickey Mouse in one slide is like this, and in the next slide he has to be like this, a little bit modified. Not too much modified, because then the image which you get is not of Mickey Mouse running, but a cacophony, a completely illogical thing. So there needs to be just this much difference between the legs of Mickey Mouse from one slide to the next, just to give the impression in a hundred slides that Mickey Mouse is running. And therefore it's the same with the universe. There is a slide here and a slide there, but if there wouldn't exist a Shakti to connect them, then this moment and this moment would be like completely illogical with each other. So to give the impression that each one of us who is a Mickey Mouse, we are, we are running, the universe must have some laws of order and causality, because otherwise the moments would split from each other and we'd have completely chaotic moments succeeding. One moment you'd be here, and the next moment you'd be on Alpha Centauri, on a different star from another solar system, you know? And it's like, how comes that I'm constantly here, and I'm moving with a limited speed, and I can do this and that? Precisely because of the succession. There is a law which tells how the image can, can sequence from one slide to the next. It's not completely illogical. That's the function of Shakti. And therefore he says, Krama, the succession, is the process corresponding to moments. It's succession and moments. The moments are the slides, and the, pro, the Krama, the, the succession, is what connects the slides with each other to make them a logical continuum. And therefore he says, Krama, is the process corresponding to the moments. And it is to be known as distinct from the cessation of the evolutionary change. In the previous sutra he said, the gunas retire and the process of change, evolution, stops, ceases. And here he says, the krama, this succession, is to be known as distinct from the cessation of evolution. Evolution stops, but Krama does not stop. Krama, the succession of the universe, is something completely different. So he doesn't mean that when you get enlightened, time stops. Time doesn't stop. Krama is still there. The process of evolution for the one who has reached this stops. So basically here Patanjali says, be careful. I'm not saying that the time stops and the universe stops because one human being has reached enlightenment. Far from that, the universe continues, but the process of evolution for that person stops. It's a brilliant way of distinguishing them from each other. You can meditate on this truth. So he describes here 
the last, this final state, Kaivalya, the enlightenment, the final spiritual realization. And he says, the gunas retire, the process of evolution stops. However, pay attention because that doesn't mean that succession also stops. And finally, sutra number 34, which concludes this great, wonderful text of yoga. He, uh, an approximate reading, because it's long and a bit ambiguous, of this sutra, but still the meaning is quite uniformly rendered by most commentators, he, it can be translated mostly like this. Kaivalya, which means enlightenment, the state of samadhi, the state of spiritual realization, comes therefore by the passing of gunas in Latin state, by the withdrawal of the gunas. He said two sutras before. Then the gunas stop. They don't act for that person anymore because there is no more need. Then therefore the gunas, the liberation means it comes, Kaivalya comes by the passing of the gunas in latent state because devoid of being the object of, because devoid of being the object of Purusha, thus the power of consciousness is restored to its natural form, which is pure consciousness. So here he uses even the word Chitta Shakti, the Shakti of Chitta. Here again Patanjali in the very last sutra uses a terminology which is Tantric. He uses Chitti Shakti, Chitta Shakti. But Chitta Shakti means the Shakti of the mind. Therefore, he says, eventually, one is, re one is resorbed at the level of the Chitta Shakti, the power of Chitta, the energy of Chitta. So, even if he doesn't have the plan, because most commentators don't think he planned to do this, Nevertheless, Patanjali here has a bit of a tantric and tantric in the metaphysical way, again, in the superior way, in the absolute way, Patanjali has a tantric end to it because he says, Kaivalya comes because the gunas retire, the gunas are a function of the mind, because devoid of being the object of Purusha, Purusha doesn't need, Purusha doesn't need the gunas anymore, so the mind has done its duty, the mind has bridged between the object and the spirit, between matter and spirit, and therefore the mind is now free. There are no more play of gunas, game of gunas in the mind. And thus, because the gunas stop and the mind is like a piece, blank, if you prefer, but in a positive way, thus the power of consciousness is restored to its natural form, which is pure consciousness. Therefore, he simply says, the Chitta Shakti reaches to its state of pure consciousness. In Kashmiri Shaivism, this is expressed by saying that Chitta Chitti, the Shakti, is becoming Chit or Shiva, which is pure consciousness, as in the famous Indian syntax, Sat Chit Ananda. Chit is pure consciousness. And the feminine of chit, that is Shiva, is chiti, because in Sanskrit, to put a word to feminine, you add an I in the end. Yogin is a male yogi, and yogini is a male yogi, a female yogi, I'm sorry. So, yogin, yogini, chit, chiti. Nara is man, 
Nari is woman. Nara Nari. Chit Chiti. Yogin Yogini. And therefore, there is a game here. And he says, Chiti Shakti becomes this coming back to her nature of Chit, which means Shakti meets with Shiva. Shakti and Shiva are reunited. In sexual tantric yoga, that's the symbol of Shiva and Shakti becoming Ardhanarishvara, Shiva half man, half woman, and thus uniting and going beyond duality. In uh, other uh, traditions, this simply says Shakti uniting with Shiva in Kundalini Yoga means Kundalini, who is Shakti, in Muladhara, is rising all the way to Sahasrara, and here she is reunited with Shiva. We have all sorts of metaphors in Kundalini Yoga, in Tantric Yoga, sexual or non-sexual, we are having all sorts of metaphors about this polarity between Chit, Shiva, Chiti, Shakti. And Patanjali actually uses a very tantric terminology, so paradoxically, in the end of his Yoga Sutra, to say thus, when you reach Kaivalya and the gunas have switched off, Chiti becomes Chit. Chiti reunites with Chit. Shakti becomes one with Shiva, and that is the end of the whole game. And therefore, uh, this final description again is bringing up the issue of how much actually Patanjali wants to speak in a tantric language or in a non-tantric language. I would like to quote for you also in this sutra and as a beautiful conclusion, the, a quote directly from Swami Vivekananda of India more than a hundred years ago when in his commentary to Yoga Sutra, he himself, while being a Vedantic promoter and while understanding Patanjali quite well and generally from a Vedantic standpoint, he, he simply cannot stop himself from giving a full Tantric commentary to this last sutra and it's because his own guru Ramakrishna Paramahamsa was a great Tantric as well. So Vivekananda as much Indian Vivekananda, as much as he pedals on his message of Vedanta, he still has an instruction, he still is initiated, impregnated with tantric views by his brilliant genius guru that was Ramakrishna Paramahamsa. And this appears in his commentary, in his Raja Yoga book, in his commentary to the Yoga Sutra, to this last Sutra of the Yoga Sutra. It's very poetic, very spiritual, and very beautiful, and very accurate, and very tantric as well. When saying his translation of this Sutra is, of course, in slightly different words, it will say the same. The resolution in the inverse order of the Gunas, bereft of any motive of action for the Purusha, is Kaivalya, or it is the establishment of the power of knowledge in its own nature. Chiti become Chit, the power of knowledge becoming pure consciousness. It's a translation which is not so accurate scholarly, that's why I prefer to use for you a more elaborate translation, a more scholarly translation, because Vivekananda is not the ultimate authority in Sanskritology and Sanskrit translations. He does a brilliant commentary, but his Sanskrit knowledge is not necessarily the best. And here is what he has to say to this 
Quote, nature's task is done. Nature, Shakti, Prakriti. Nature's task, now that you reach Kaivalya. So, ah, so nature was not a Maya. It was not our enemy. Nature is actually having a task to take us to Samadhi. So it's our mother. So it's Shakti, right? It's our friend. Nature's task is done. This unselfish task which our sweet nurse, nature, had imposed upon herself. She gently took the self-forgetting soul by the hand, as it were, and showed him all the experiences in the universe, all manifestations, bringing him higher and higher through various bodies, till his lost glory came back, and he remembered his own nature. Then the kind mother went back the same way she came, for others who also have lost their way in the trackless desert of life. And thus is she working without beginning and without end. And, th and thus, through pleasure and pain, through good and evil, the infinite river of souls is flowing into the ocean of perfection of self-realization. This is an ode to Shakti. It is Shakti that carries us to Shiva. It is Mother Nature, so often despised, treated as samsara, treated as maya, treated as a prison of some sort. It is this friendly shakti that takes us by the hand until we remember who we are, that we are the Supreme Consciousness. Again, I would like to read it once more, so deep it is. Nature's task is done. This unselfish task which our sweet nurse, nature, has in, had imposed upon herself. She gently took the self-forgetting soul by the hand, as it were, and showed him all the experiences in the universe, all manifestations, bringing him higher and higher through various bodies, till his lost glory came back and he remembered his own nature. Then the kind mother went back the same way she came. The gunas withdrew. It's enough support for you. Now I'm going back because others need me. Then the kind mother went back the same way she came for others who have also lost their way in the trackless desert of life. And thus is she working without beginning and without end. And thus, through pleasure and pain, through good and evil, the infinite river of souls is flowing into the ocean of perfection, the self-realization. Glory, he concludes, glory unto those who have realized their own nature. May their blessings be on us all. This is the end of the quote. And indeed, there is very little to say beyond this. Patanjali has brought us slowly, slowly, talking about the mind, yama and niyama and all the things, siddhis and so on. Lo, that Patanjali has brought us to the level of describing the upper layers of the mind, the union between mind and overmind, or supramental, as Aurobindo calls it. And finally, he has shown us how the mind, which is shakti, ultimately, chiti, shakti, is taking us to this abode of enlightenment where the gunas disappear, the kleshas and karmas are over, the causality of the universe still continues because the universe doesn't disappear when we get enlightened, and yet 
for the soul that has reached that evolution has reached its purpose and this evolution was not against nature this evolution was caused by nature it was supported by nature it is mother nature shakti our best friend in this universe who has take who is taking us to the remembrance of our own ultimate nature this is the message of patanjali and incredibly enough it ends in a very tantric note while patanjali 80 85% of his text uh, strives ceaselessly to be dry and ascetic i have signaled to you several sutras in which patanjali dangerously veers and sometimes blatantly steers into statements which are metaphysically incorrect from the standpoint of vedanta because actually he mingles freely some concepts which are tantric so this classical yoga of patanjali it's a bit of a borderline it's 85% vedantic 15% tantric and the mind is the missing link between object and subject between matter and spirit in this way tonight we managed the beautiful thing of finalizing the yoga sutra of patanjali it took us it's true with great interruptions but it took us some three seasons to go through this fundamental text this season i have decided to go stronger on the text and on the commentaries because people need uh, this input